This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, our 75th broadcast, 25 days before Election Day, down to earth in Kentucky with Paul Ryan and Joe Biden, and taking flight with Denzel Washington. We'll check in with our old friend Kevin Sullivan of Kevin Sullivan Communications, Kevin, the former communications director for President George W. Bush, about what went down Thursday night in Danville. Then, a very special conversation with one of my great bosses and mentors, Mike McCurry, former White House press secretary and now, among many other things, the co-chairman of the Commission on Presidential Debates. And finally, into the skies, David Bobert. He and I were kids in the White House together in the 90s, and then he went Hollywood, following a path to success with diligence and perseverance, first at Warner Brothers, then DreamWorks, and now at Paramount. The studio has a new film coming out days before Election Day, Flight, starring Denzel Washington, the first live-action picture by Robert Zemeckis since Tom Hanks in Cast Away in 2000. David's job is shepherding these blockbusters from idea through development and onto the silver screen, and he'll give us a drive-on pass to the studio lot and a peek behind the scenes at the process that gets a big-budget picture finally into the theaters. But first, we welcome back to our show on the phone from Florida, Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back, Kevin. Thanks, Josh. Good to be with you. Let's get right into Danville. What did you think of the debate? Looking at it from a political communications standpoint, Josh, there's three things. Number one... Paul Ryan won the split-screen debate, which is so important. Obviously, the way the networks cover it, you get that split-screen almost the entire uh, hour and a half, even though this debate around the table was sort of designed to have them more looking at each other. We still saw the split-screen. I think uh, you know Democrats and, and the campaign are, are happy with the job that Vice President Biden did bringing the energy, but no one is more happy than Jason Sudeikis of Saturday Night Live because... Of course, he portrays Vice President Biden, and there was so much material there for him to work with. Uh, the, the smirking, the arms up in the air, the grimacing, uh, which was surprising to me given how much attention the Al Gore presidential debate uh, performance along those lines in the split screen uh, got. Uh, you know, it's really a part of debate folklore now that you have to always act like you're on camera. Uh, the, the CNN focus group dials didn't like his, his demeanor in the split screen. Uh, you know, an RNC video about just the laughing that was uh, put together about a minute and 10 seconds worth was seen 250,000 times on, on YouTube in the first 11 hours after it was posted. Joe Pounder, the research guy at the RSC, counted 82 interruptions. And while I know bringing the energy was the job and he was in attack mode, which was on purpose, and he scored some points there, uh, I, I think, you know, Charles Krauthammer had a great point on Fox last night when he said, if you read the transcript, it was even. If you listened on the radio, Biden won. If you watched on TV, Ryan won. Biden leaves the bigger impression this, you know, the day after. Uh, he connected with his base. The aggressor gets the plaudits, like we saw with Governor Romney in the first presidential debate. But likability counts, and I question whether or not that it would appeal to those women, uh, independents, and swing voters. Uh, and we'll remember the images long after the words have faded. And the image we'll remember last night was of Joe Biden being kind of cranky and interrupting the youthful, uh, steady, capable-appearing Paul Ryan. So I, I would give the split screen to Ryan. But also, 
uh, I would give Ryan some bonus points for storytelling. You know, here on Polyoptics, we talk a lot about images and painting those pictures that make the words memorable. Biden used the words of the common man, like malarkey and things like that, that people could connect with. But Ryan painted pictures. You know, he talked about the first sonogram with his with his wife. You know, when on, on the issue of of uh, being a pro-life person, he didn't just state his position. He really brought you into that into that room at the doctor's office with the sonogram. Very effective. So he connected with substance, but also with some pretty compelling stories. And he was supposed to be. You know, the wonky numbers, you know, budget guy. And I thought he was very, very powerful with the, the storytelling and, and scored high marks there. Uh, but I do think that uh, wrapping up Vice President Biden's the way he looked into the camera on at least two or three occasions, all you seniors out there, have you been denied choices? And another time when he said, folks, use your common sense. Who do you trust on this? Very powerful. Uh, I, you know, I think Ryan won the Benghazi exchange i think biden won the stimulus exchange when he challenged him on the letters that he wrote very effective but i i think i would give the edge to ryan just because i think that the lasting image will be of the cranky interrupting smirking uh, snarky vice president and 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 that is not one that will resonate with uh, a lot of those swing voters that he uh, was going for especially women let's hear that last uh, clip we have of biden when he does look into the camera and talking about health care who you believe the AMA, me, a guy who's fought his whole life for this, or somebody who had actually put in motion a plan that knowingly cut six, uh, added $6,400 a year more to the cost of Medicare. Now they got a new plan. Trust me, it's not going to cost you any more. Folks, follow your instincts on this one. So, Kevin, in your analysis, you talk about how you would give the edge in this debate to uh, Representative Ryan. You talk about the gestures that Vice President Biden made. But if last week in Denver was such a game changer, is there anything to suggest, one, that this is anything but sort of a a draw with an edge. It doesn't sort of change the trajectory of the race in any way and the way it it currently stood uh, as of the moment that they they sat down at the table with Martha Raddatz. And two, you know, you might give the edge to Representative Ryan, but uh, you do look at Joe Biden and you think of the wealth of experience that he's had in his decades in Congress, uh, the experience that he has in foreign policy, uh, the fact that, you know, what we are electing in a vice president is someone who can sit behind the resolute desk in the Oval Office in the event that a president is incapacitated or killed. You got to give full props to Paul Ryan for the career he's already established. But at 42 years old and in a week when Time magazine published uh, pictures of him doing his P90X routine and looking like a sitcom character from ABC from the 1990s, that's not my line. But while he might have done a better presentation during those 90 minutes, do you have enough confidence that should anything happen to a President Romney that this guy is ready to take over the Oval Office of the United States? Well, first of all, I agree with you that it was not a game changer. I think Ryan, you know, did enough. Uh, I think he performed well enough, certainly, to, you know, maintain the momentum that Governor Romney had picked up off the first debate. I think Vice President Biden needed to be in attack mode. I just think he went too far. Uh, so, but he did did energize the base. I don't know that that was the only goal, but 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 I agree with you that this was not a you know, a, a big needle mover. On the point about experience, the interesting thing there, the way when I watched it and some other people that I've spoken to, you would think that the, that the, vice, the sitting vice president with, with 
you know, so many terms in the Senate and all the foreign policy experience. He mentioned 20 trips to, to Iraq and Afghanistan, that he would be the guy steadier at the wheel and more statesmanlike and more presidential. And I really believe the flapping his arms and the grimacing and the smiling and the chuckling showed disrespect. And it showed a lack of maturity that the 42-year-old actually exhibited. I thought, I thought Representative Ryan did not let uh, the vice president get under his skin, despite the, you know, all of the uh, attempts to, to throw him off with those gestures and everything. So I give him props for remaining uh, calm and steady and showing that he is a sober guy and a guy capable. He's already exhibited leadership in his, in his career at a young age. Uh, but I thought, he, uh, I thought he acquitted himself very well on that, on that count. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the actual get in the weeds of the production of the debate in a few minutes with Mike McCurry. But to the very point that you raised, Kevin, and the, the fact that Jason Sudeikis is going to have such a, a field day tonight on Saturday Night Live with Joe Biden, is the very nature of the network pool and the network directors deciding which feeds to take and giving us of almost a 90-minute uh, end-to-end split screen the right way for you and me and 50 million viewers to actually watch a debate? Should we should we be evaluating a guy's grimaces at the same time that we're actually trying to look at the other person talking and giving substance? Or should there be a more refined production where a person who has the floor has the floor and the other person can think and not feel that every wink or nod or twitch is a, is a vote to be lost? You know, a, a more refined presentation is, is a high-minded I, I, idea. Probably C-SPAN is this place for that. I think it's just too juicy for the networks to, to do it that way. You know, we know when, when, we, when I hear people talk about media bias, my reaction is always, you know, if they're biased, they're biased in favor of conflict. And it's just too, too um, you know, filled with possibility to, to show the person who's not talking and reacting to the person who is. It's the best way visually to pit one against the other. So while I think it would be great if they did away with it because the, the guy should be able to, to uh, scratch his nose or look at his notes, uh, and you just can't in, in, this, in, the, in the way that the, that the shows are, are, are cut right now. But uh, maybe someday that will be, uh, that the, the, the campaigns may come together at a certain point. Who knows and actually uh, you know, agree to that. Well, let's get under the hood right now of how these presidential debates and vice presidential debates are produced and put on and presented. We want to bring in a very special friend, a person who is one of my bosses and mentors uh, in the 90s, my friend Mike McCurry, former White House press secretary under Bill Clinton, State Department spokesman under Warren Christopher at Public Strategies Washington, and among other things, uh, on the Mason-Dixon line between the Orioles and Nationals. Mike, how do you sort of look at the baseball playoffs so far and where the Nats are going? Well, my dilemma is even worse. If we ever get to a, uh, you know, a, a, a beltway series here between the teams in Washington and Baltimore, we have to get by my beloved San Francisco Giants. So I am so deeply conflicted in these baseball playoffs, I'm not sure what to do. Well, one area in which you are decidedly not conflicted, along with Frank Fankoff, is trying to put together a nonpartisan uh, series of debates beginning in Denver and continuing this week in Kentucky, next week at Hofstra, and then in Florida. How are the debates going so far from where you sit? Well, we uh, designed a new format for these debates, and 
the idea being that a moderator can kind of put an issue in play and the candidates can address the issue, but then there would be an extended period for more discussion, more engagement, a more vibrant back and forth between the candidates. And we certainly got that both in Denver and then at the debate in Danville, Kentucky, between the vice presidential candidates. I thought on on the whole, I mean, you could probably pick apart and fault some aspects of these debates, but they were certainly much more substantive, more engaging, and I think more illuminating for the voters than some of the debates we've seen in previous quadrennial cycles, which amounted mostly to dueling press conferences. So, so far, so good. We're, you know, two for two, I think, on the use of this new format and coaxing the candidates into having a more textured conversation about some of the issues. I thought substantively last night the vice presidential debate was one of the most uh you know most interesting debates that i've ever seen partly it was because martha raddatz was working through a range of both domestic and foreign policy issues so we pronounce ourselves satisfied we probably know we got some ways to go here but we'll see how the next debate coming up next week at hofstra which is more of the town hall format uh, between the presidential candidates and then the last debate that bob schieffer will uh, moderate on foreign policy issues at the end of the month. Well, we're really, that'll be a good test at the end to see whether this new effort to get the candidates to be more direct on issues has really worked. Mike, as you arrived at this new format, take us a little bit behind the scenes with the negotiations with the two campaigns about about the new format. Sure. The um, the genesis of this is actually former Senator Jack Danforth from Missouri, U.S. Senator uh, Danforth from Missouri. Two years ago, he put before the commission in one of our meetings the, the proposition that these debates were, are really coming at a critical time for our country, given the enormous fiscal issues that we face and the challenges we face globally uh, over the next four years, and that this time around we had to do something that would not allow the candidates to just use their standard talking points and their standard slogans, that they would actually be in a position where they could challenge each other and try to get more specific on what their plans were for the for the country. So that led us to then uh, think about a format and propose these changes in format. The commission, by the way, our role is pretty simple. We we pick the places, we pick the moderators, and we establish the format. And we more or less say, if we build it, you come. <laughs> and, you know, to their credit, both the Obama and the Romney campaigns very quickly agreed when they were invited. And, by the way, we would invite any candidate uh, who reached a 15% threshold in national polls, provided that they had a mathematical possibility of winning the Electoral College, because there are other candidates out there uh, who, if their supporters kind of work them up to 15%, could also be included in these debates. But there are, believe it or not, five candidates who are currently in that position uh, who could win a, could conceivably win an Electoral College victory. Uh, but only two of them, Obama and Romney, meet the third criteria, which is a composite of 15% in a series of respected national polls chosen by the Gallup organization. When uh, Vice President Biden was challenging uh, Ryan on the on the stimulus, and he said, you know, you wrote me these two letters. I can't show them to you, but you wrote me these two letters. So I, I took that, and of course, focusing here on polyoptics, props are a great image a connector for people. Uh, so there's a rule against bringing outside props or devices onto the st- onto the stage. I guess. 
Yes, that's been a long-standing tradition at at the presidential debate sponsored by the Commission on Presidential mm-hmm. Debates that we discourage. Uh, props or uh, those kinds of theatrics, because uh, we believe it's the really the the give and take between the candidates and their conversation that the voters most want to see. Uh, remember, our fundamental mission is to make these as interesting and uh, revealing to the voters who are trying to decide who to support or trying to decide if they have already chosen the right person to support. And and you know sometimes those uh, uh, charts can be distracting. Um, often, you ask a question about the, the campaigns themselves. Sometimes the campaigns will get together and discuss and negotiate back and forth on things that they think should happen at the debates. And we, we generally kind of take a skeptical view of those agreements if they sometimes have ideas that, you know, say, look, it would be better for us. And actually, this, in fact, happened this time around. We had recommended that the candidates be seated like, uh, Congressman Ryan and Vice President Biden were last night at the debate. We had recommended that for all of the debates, but the, the presidential campaigns came back to us and said, look, in our discussions, we would prefer that the first debate be at podiums. And so we said, okay, that doesn't do violence to the concepts that we have developed for this new format, so we will, uh, we will accede to that. You will see it, by the way, in the last debate, which will be the format very similar to the debate in Denver, that the candidates will be seated. It will be interesting to see if that produces kind of a different tonal quality. Of course, the the debate coming up Tuesday night, next Tuesday night in Hofstra, will be a a town hall format with uh, citizens chosen uh, from the tri-state area around Hofstra participating and asking the questions. Mike, I think these settings uh, mean all to the debates in the way they are produced and directed. I assume as a, a co-chair of the commission with Frank Farenkopf and a host to your corporate sponsors and to the hosts at, uh, at, in Danville that you were in the hall during the debate? Yes. You know, for me, it's an unusual experience, Josh. You'll remember from our time at the White House and in previous debates that I've been at, I like to pace around and I like yeah. to watch the debate on, on television because that's the way most Americans see it. But in my capacity now as co-chair of the commission, I have to sit with Frank Ferencroft like a potted plant in the audience. And it's a it's very interesting because the first thing I wanted to do after last night's debate, of course, was to see how the visual image looked. And, Josh, that's something you're obviously an expert in because it is very often is a very different experience when you're seeing it on television versus what you actually see in the hall. Yeah, and so I I have to assume that, like Robert Griffin III, you're going back to this morning as soon as you get a little rest from your um, early morning flight to study the game films and to see what you'd do differently. The uh, one observation that I had from Danville, and there are plenty of others from Denver, and is that these candidates missed an opportunity with Biden only twice and Ryan once, realizing that the right place to look was not always at Martha Raddatz or even at your opponent, but off into the darkness at the one lens that gives you that head-on ability to look into the living rooms of 60 million people or so. And I wonder, as you look at the, the fact that networks are deciding which feeds to take from the pool, whether the split screen is showing people almost looking at angles off of the TV screen rather than each other, and how do you create a entertainment or a news product for people in their living rooms in which candidates are really sort of either looking at each other or looking into the lens? Well, it, that's a good question. Part of that is the preparation that the campaigns have to undertake with their candidates. So I'll tell you one little 
revealing thing. Um, obviously, before the debate, both candidates get an opportunity to come in, see the hall, look where the cameras are, see what the lighting is going to be like, check what the sound feels like as they're actually sitting there on stage. And in both cases yesterday, both of the candidates were very clearly uh, told, here's the camera that is... Um, you know, going to be your head-on shot. In fact, one of them jokes said, "Oh yeah, that's the uh, that's the people in America camera," and you know, so they 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 get that. But uh, you could tell last night when you're seated in that format with a three-way conversation going on between the moderator and the two candidates, it's very difficult to suddenly turn and remember, okay, I, I want to go now to that camera that's out there where the American people are. And, you know, that takes, you know, some sophisticated media training and some understanding of the, the, the way in which the theater moves. And not, not all candidates can do it, particularly when you're under the enormous stress of being in such a high-stakes uh, environment. So, you know, some candidates are, I think, much better at it than others. And Josh, you also, you know, I, I think you'd, you'd be the first to say too. If you don't, sometimes it looks almost distracting. If suddenly you ignore the person that you're sitting next to and having a conversation with, and suddenly start talking to an inanimate camera that's out there in the distance somewhere. Yeah. So, I think I think part of this is just the natural human inclination to want to keep a three-way conversation underway while you're sitting there. Yeah, but it's that it's that theatrical ability to to tune out the fact that you've got your Danville crowd, your sponsors there, you've got your opponent uh, in a meet the press style desk just a few feet away, Martha in front of you. But the winning shot is to for a debate, other than other uh, as opposed to a rally or a convention, is to look in that camera and maybe around that whether it's uh, Phil Longi or uh, or the directors need to figure out at least if you're going to be looking at the moderator to figure out a, a different angle so at least it can put the person's head tilted toward the center of the TV set rather than off to the side but oh boy we're getting in the weeds now well it's in the weeds but actually one thing I think your listeners would would appreciate understanding better the Commission on Presidential Debates we we sponsor the debates but but the broadcast itself has to be and always has been under the control of the news organizations that constitute what we call the White House pool. That is the uh, organization of the major broadcast networks that actually pool their resources so that they don't all spend the same amount of money trying to get the same camera shot. And it rotates. Last night, for example, it was CNN's turn at the first debate in uh, Denver. It was ABC's turn. I can't remember the other two coming up, but they kind of rotate the responsibilities. And what happens is the, those cameras all produce a, you know, separate uh, shots. I think there are a total of eight cameras that are in the hall. And all of those eight shots are then available to the producer uh, of the broadcast, who then puts together what is called the switched feed. That is the feed that actually goes out that I think if you watched it on C-SPAN, you were actually seeing what was the network pool switched feed. And the, what's happened, of course, increasingly is that many networks, they have access to all of those independent shots called the isolated camera shots, and they mix their own broadcast. And so if you were watching on CBS, you might have had a different experience than if you were watching on CNN or Fox, because those networks and their producers might choose to use that split-screen format to give you the side-by-side -side shot that I think has become prevalent now. And I, I think there ought to be some good discussion of that. I think there's ambivalence, certainly on the part of campaigns, about 
having that split screen because you 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 in effect you're on camera for 100% of the time during the debate and and you know it doesn't give you an opportunity to look down at your notes we we saw some criticism of president obama at the first debate because it looked like he was distracted or not paying attention to governor romney when in fact he was actually writing notes and trying to think what am i going to say in my next time at bat here uh, so i you know it, it's an interesting conversation but the, the the thing from our point of view is we we step back from that as a commission because we are not uh, in in the position of controlling the editorial content of the debate, that has to be in the hands of, of journalists and of news organizations that use their own journalistic criteria on how to put together the programming that that the American people actually experience. Martha Raddatz getting uh, high marks for her job as moderator uh, in the VP debate. I would imagine there's heavy lobbying on the part of the news organizations, Mike, to to get those slots. How do you choose the moderators? Well, it's a good question. We there is some lobbying that happens, although sometimes, for example, uh, Martha Raddatz is ended up being an, a, a great choice. Uh, I can say that there was lobbying for a lot of different people, but not especially for her on the commission. As we looked at the range of people available and the kinds of mix that we wanted to have and the different sorts of moderators we have, obviously two men with a lot of experience who've been doing. You know, political journalism for a long time, and then two women, well, Candy Crowley, very experienced political journalist, but Martha Raddatz, a somewhat different kind of choice because of her experience as a foreign correspondent, a foreign affairs correspondent, someone who has also covered politics in the White House and, and knows that side of the business too, but uh, brought a different kind of uh, perspective to it. And I, what we look for is, you know, we, we, we look for diversity, and I'd be the first to say we're going to you know, have to do more to encourage the networks to bring into the pool of people who would be eligible to do a high-stakes uh, debate like this, more more women, more Hispanics, more African-Americans, more people, and particularly more younger people, because we've got, you know, a new generation of broadcast journalists moving up in the ranks now. Going uh, back in time a little bit, and during your, your tenure as President Clinton's press secretary, you were the guy that that made the decision to put the the entire White House press briefing on camera. Uh, you've talked about that over the years. Well, how do you assess it now, with with uh, as the years have gone by, the, the impact of that of that decision and, and and its merits? You know, I've come to the conclusion in retrospect that it was a bad idea. So I have to kind of plead guilty. I think. Do you um, still feel that way, even with I, you know the explosion of access and all the digital media and everything? I do. I do because. And uh, if you, I'll take a second to explain. I, I, I originally decided to allow broadcast uh, media to have access to that daily briefing, not so much because of television, because they, they weren't particularly interested in the daily press briefing at that time, but it was really more for the benefit of radio reporters that had to go out hour after hour and produce an hourly update for their audiences. And uh, they was actually, Josh will know uh, uh, Mark Noller from CBS and Peter Mayer, who is then yep. with, can't remember, Westinghouse or something. But anyhow, the two of them, they're longtime venerable uh, radio reporters at the White House. And they came and said, look, we are at a disadvantage with our print competitors, particularly the wire services, because we have to go out and report hour after hour. And if we could have some access to the sound of the briefing, that would make it uh, much more interesting for our listeners and give them more information that was coming from the White House every day. And, and I thought they made a very good point. But, of course, you can't discriminate between radio and TV, or maybe I could have, but I didn't 
think of that. I just sort of said, all right, let's try to equal up the uh, odds here and let the broadcast media have the same access. Now, I'd hasten to point out, this was long before Monica Lewinsky and long before the daily press briefing became kind of a soap opera. And what happened, I think, because of it was, you know, we for three years we we did it and it was perfectly fine. And CNN and then as more uh, cable stations came online, they started using uh, parts of the uh, daily briefing. But with the beginning, it, 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 actually, frankly, it was in the because of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, it became sort of a daily sideshow that the cable stations could run, and they enjoyed the theater of it, and they enjoyed putting it on, and it was good for their ratings. But what happened over time is it turned it into a televised uh, event in which the personalities of the reporters and the press secretary became more than what that became more important than the simple exercise of just giving reporters information so they could go out and figure out how to report the story that day because remember the the press briefing is supposed to be the raw ingredients that go into reporting a story about what's going on at the white house that day and it's not supposed to be the news itself it's not supposed to be a news event on most days it's supposed to kind of give people information that they can use as they construct their stories so uh, there's, if I could do it all over again, uh, I mean, this really is getting in the weeds. I would probably do it the way we did it at the State Department. By the way, the State Department had been televised for a long time, so and I had been there before going to the White House, so it seemed perfectly natural to me to, to let TV broadcast it. But the rule at the State Department is no live broadcast, uh, except in exceptional circumstances when there is, in fact, breaking news happening. And that way, people can use excerpts from the briefing in their reporting later, but it doesn't have that feel that there's a, a real genuine news event happening here. And I wish I had kind of put that restriction on it, because it's a little hard to get that cow back in the barn now. Well, we're on the radio, Mike, uh, in the comfort of uh, just uh, telephones and microphones, but I want to set a scene because I want to take us back to, I think, December 21st, 1994, maybe one of your last times uh, in at the podium at Foggy Bottom. And uh, if there was ever a spokesman or press secretary who used uh, theatrics and humor and fun uh, to be talking to reporters covering grave issues of the day, it was one Michael D. McCurry. Let's hear Tom Brokaw narrate it. Meanwhile, at the State Department, where they usually take themselves so seriously, Press Secretary Mike McCurry as Santa, giving his boss, Warren Christopher, a 10-day vacation. McCurry is expected to be the new White House Press Secretary, where he'll need more than a beard and a funny hat to survive. <laughs> you know, I had totally forgotten about that until just now. There was another, Joshua, remember, another time I came out, the camera guys at the White House always put something on the podium so they can focus their cameras. And one day they had a paper bag out there with a little face on it, and I couldn't resist the opportunity when I went out to put the paper bag on my head. And I, I, I said I would conduct the rest of the briefing as that anonymous source that you always hear quoted from the White House. Um, you know, I did have some fun at that job. And I wonder now, in the day of YouTube and instant commentary and blogging, whether any press secretary could get away with stuff like that, because I think you would instantly be criticized by one half of the world or the other if you did something like that and looked like you were not treating things as seriously as some people would imagine it should be taken. So I, I think a lot of the fun has been wrenched out of the process by the 24-7 new media news cycle that we get into sometimes. 
How but do you assess, it, Mike, the, the state of the news media, especially in Washington today, compared to what it was then? Obviously, things, as you said, have sped up exponentially. Is the journalism still being done uh, you know, at the high-quality level and to, to get it right, not just get it, get it first? Well, there's high-quality journalism done every day, and, it's, and it, uh, people, the American people have access to it. It's now done in multiple forms of media, uh, from digital to video to broadcast to audio, you know, across the board. However, that said, the collapse of the economic model, which sustained news organizations and made them, if not profitable, at least cost-efficient so that good journalism could be supported, that's what has eroded. And it's eroded because... Uh, the Internet has brought a culture of free content to the American people. People assume that they can have access to all the content that they want for free. And the problem with that, of course, is if you're not deriving revenue from the great journalism you're providing, it's hard to support the journalists that are out doing that work. It's hard to pay for all the different kinds of broadcasts that, that people might want to have. And I, I, I think we, we somehow or other someone has to create a viable business model for uh, the 21st century new media and journalistic enterprise that will allow good journalism to flourish. Now, it might, it might in fact be a nonprofit model. We're seeing some good evidence that nonprofit institutions can support good quality journalism and that that can then be available to you know, readers, listeners, viewers, but uh, but we're at a time of enormous change, and that it's the technology that's impacting the media. It's the restructuring of news organizations themselves as businesses. It's kind of the convergence and conglomeration of many media organizations and the media ownership itself. So that we're going through a very turbulent time here. I, I I do think at the end of the day, people want to know what is the news. They want to hear. Uh, good, solid, accurate, accurate, you know, information about what's happening here in Washington, D.C., and I think we will get to a new place. We just aren't there yet. Well, we can always dream, Mike McCurry. I mean, one thing you said uh, in a discussion this summer was that your favorite TV show is uh, The Newsroom, especially the character played by Sam Waterston, Charlie Skinner. I want to just hear a little bit of the way Charlie might give a speech to one of his talent and get you to reflect on that and what that means. I was in a bar in Da Nang. Just now? 1969. I was embedded with 144th artillery for UPI, and I was sitting there with a warm Coke, watching a beautiful Vietnamese woman doing an exotic dance right in the middle of everybody. A beautiful, beautiful woman. And I thought to myself, I will never know what it is to be with a woman like that. And at that exact moment, the woman spun twice, teetered over, and fell right into my lap. That was a story about how sometimes things fall right into your lap. <laughs> that is a wonderful image. <laughs> I love that show, by the way, but it, it is a show that is probably everyone's, uh, is, is probably everyone's, in everyone's imagination of what the liberal media might be, it's that show. <laughs> and obviously, you know, the real world doesn't work the way newsroom works, but uh, that is a, that, that that advice of a seasoned editor to one of his reporters really is true. Great stories do sometimes fall in your lap, and you have to kind of know when to take the opportunity to run with it and to see it and not be so caught up in the humdrum daily routine that you miss what really is truly important. But, you know, the other truth there is, 
and uh, having talked, having spent last night at the debate and talking to a lot of my friends who are working on the political campaign covering it this year, the enormous demands on these journalists to do constant updates of their stories, to blog, to produce video content, even if you've been a print journalist all your life, it's putting such a strain on them that they don't have an opportunity to let good stories fall on their lap anymore because they're always racing just to kind of catch up with whatever deadline they face during the day. So I think we are doing some damage to that proposition just by the fact we're not giving good journalists the time they need to step back and, and really put together and think and write and report uh, the great stories that are out there. It is an idealized vision of what the news business uh, could have become or could have remained. But Mike, just as we let you go, and I know you got to get back to work, um, the path that you've taken beyond working as co-chairman of the Commission on Presidential Debates and your work at Public Strategies Washington has involved things that you might not expect a White House press secretary to then focus on, including pursuing your master's degree in theology at Wesley Theological Seminary. What, what's been your trajectory since walking out of 16 Pennsylvania Avenue the last time, and sort of where, what, what's the journey you personally are headed on? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say it's the doctrine of atonement that I'm pursuing, but uh, um, it's actually, I found in my experiences at the White House that there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of human challenge in that. If any of you have read uh, George Stephanopoulos' book, All Too Human, which is about his yeah. own challenges to his own character and what he went through almost spiritually as a White House aide in some of the uh, some of the conflict that he felt about that. I think it's a reminder to all of us that we have to think about who we are and examine our conscience and think about what are the things that are really important, what our values are, and try to find some way to apply them uh, in the world of politics that we live in right now. If you come from the Christian tradition, as I do, there is the great commandment that Jesus gives people to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there ain't much love like that in our politics today. And that's kind of what got me down that path. I started thinking to myself, the quality of the discourse that we're having is not the kind that would allow people to respect one another. And even if you disagree with them, if you've got strong political uh, points of view that are in opposition to your opponent, how do you reach some kind of agreement on what we're going to do given those types of disagreements and those, that kind of polarization. And we, are, we don't have established models right now of how people can have those kinds of civil conversations. And, and I think, as most people know, as a result, Washington is a very, very broken and bitter place. And uh, I do think people who are in the world of the faith community have got a voice that they need to raise and use to kind of help repair some of that that damage. Uh, Bill Clinton, in his second inaugural address, talking, quoting Isaiah, talked about repairing the breach. And I wish, and he probably wishes he would have had more opportunity to, to do that. He never got that chance because of events that we're yep. all too familiar with. Well, Michael D. McCurry, the 21st White House Press Secretary uh, and now the co-chairman of the Commission on Presidential Debates, along with Frank Farenkopf, thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics, and congratulations on what has been a very provocative debate season so far in Denver and Danville, and good luck in Hofstra and Boca Raton. Thanks for joining well, us today. Thanks. Thanks for your reporting, too. You, you've got a great program uh, going there. kind of gives us a lot of good insights into the political business. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day.
So as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, we have a very special guest just in from L.A., in fact, on the red eye, and he posts on Facebook this morning that he's landed along with 50 Cent, uh, LaToya Jackson, and her dog, and uh, made his way to Kennedy and made his way into our studio, David Bobert, Paramount Pictures, your film, or the film that you've shepherded to production, Flight, starring Denzel Washington in theaters November 2nd. Days before we cast our ballots, welcome to Polyoptics, my old friend. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Quite an honor. Uh, your your movie is all about the most perilous experience one can imagine as a passenger, that of a crashing plane, and how much you've been seeing dailies for months. You've been you've seen cuts of the film. You've also seen what Zemeckis did with Tom Hanks in Castaway. Do you now get on these flights that you do these overnight flights across the country or over to London and say? There, but for the grace of God, go I. Almost definitely. I did before, for sure, and now I think I've been tempting fate by working on this movie and the horrible irony of executive who worked on this movie uh, has an unfortunate accident. Luckily, I've made it here. We premiere at the New York Film Festival on Sunday, uh, and then I'll get on a plane again. But yes, every day I fly is this day I'm away from my family, and a day I'm scared we're going down. Oh, but God. <laughs> uh, luckily, things feel safer every day. Let's hear a little bit of the trailer, uh, w- what's available online so far, and then talk a little bit about the setup of Zemeckis' film. I'm on a list, baby girl. There is all kinds of crazy news people out here. You're a rock star, man. You will never pay for another drink as long as you live. Captain Whitaker is a real American hero. This is Hugh Lang. He's an attorney from Chicago. Why do we need a lawyer? You don't remember having your blood drawn the night of the crash? You had alcohol in your system. That could be life in prison. So that is Denzel Washington as Captain Whip Whitaker, also John Goodman. Bruce Greenwood is in the film as well. Uh, David, I was in New York 2009, I think, when the U.S. air flight that Chesley Sully Sullenberger uh, piloted from LaGuardia Airport into the Hudson River, saving everyone aboard miraculously. You can't help but notice the the, uh, similarities in name between Sully Sullenberger and Whip Whitaker. Uh, how did this idea come to life? You know, uh, obviously that was a really unfortunate accident with luckily a terrific result. This is a script that predates it uh, really? way before. The script was completed in 2007, uh, and the writer, John Gadens, uh, had been working on it even before we became involved, and the character was always Whip Whitaker. Uh, wow. That was always his name. It just, unfortunately, uh, more recent events made it, uh, feel timely and relevant, but we it, we had the script that was pretty much the movie we made from uh, 2007. Development process, though, did the 2009 event sort of put it, that script at the top of the pile? Uh, I wish I could say it did. It most definitely did not. Uh, you know, this kind of movie is challenging and provocative, and these are the hardest kind of movies that get made today. Uh, it was only really when you know Denzel Washington re- responded to the script very early on and was interested but it was only when Robert Zemeckis decided that he was ready to make a live-action movie again and responded to this. So the combination of those guys under the parameters that we all agreed it had to be made uh, were we able to sort of move with uh, some deliberate speed. David, you do things like talking in L.A. to or in New York to the panels of the Writers Guild of America, and you talk about the importance of script and the development of process, and now, as the industry changes, the role of marketing. So... D- at the from 2009 at whatever point the development process was in gear or today uh, how much is the fact of the that 
what was already on paper in script form actually happened close to real life, or at least the the technological aspects of that make it a, a film that can be more successfully marketed? You know, it's an excellent question. Definitely the world has evolved since the script was written, and, uh, you know, there have been efficiencies and economies in terms of how you can recreate certain things that uh, we took advantage of. Uh, and Bob, having done Castaway with a similar sort of sequence, uh, really knew it better than most, you know, on a marketing level, you know, continue looking for new ways to reach people. You know, there's a lot of times that when we were in the White House, you would be very conscious that there were different media markets, very conscious about small, medium, and large. And, you know, obviously that still applies. But to me, I've begun to be subscribed to the philosophy there's really just one market. It's the internet, you know. Someone in Topeka, Kansas, is reading the same thing I'm reading in New York City, at the same moment when a trailer goes online. The same newspapers. I don't, you know, as we're seeing print go down. So we have to be, and you see ads online too that target people by their interests and what websites they went to. So it's like it's definitely, definitely something that we continue to thrive, like all sort of people pushing product to try to reach their audience. Take us into the film a little bit, and what part of the country is envisioned that the plane goes down in? Uh, the story takes place, uh, it's a it's called South Jet Airlines, it's sort of a commuter airline. Uh, it's coming from Florida, uh, Tallahassee, I believe, into uh, outside of Atlanta uh, when the plane goes down, which is only... Short flight. Uh, not short enough. Uh, it was, you know, one of these movies that, it's only a third of the movie, I'd say, but it, the movie basically starts with uh, this this plane crash uh, and the movie really tells a story about the aftermath and investigation into what caused it and the toll that it takes uh, on the pilot and you learn things about him and others uh, of what happened previous to the flight. Shot on location where? Uh, pretty much all in Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia and outside areas. Um, Atlanta is a good place to make films these days? Uh, particularly, yes. It's a warm climate, a uh, lot of crew but also, you know, a lot of sort of incentives, incentives, incentives by the by the state and the city that makes it very, you know, the most important thing is, you know, it's harder and harder to make movies at a price. So the most important thing for us is to get the most bang for our buck that so it can the most money can end up on the screen. So a lot of times we go out of state, like to Atlanta, for example. In the production process, based on your long history with me at the White House, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the, given the fact that this film deals with a lot of federal aviation issues and FAA investigation, how much do you bring sort of your government service sensibility into the development process and how the, how realism finds its way into Zemeckis' film? Uh, I think like most filmmakers, and particularly taking a story like this, you want to be very true to life and accurate. You know, a lot of time was spent talking to experts. In fact, uh, Catherine O'Leary Higgins, who was my right. boss at the White House, who went on to Kitty. work at, who went to work at the NTSB, uh, consulted with the writer very early on in the script, not in any formal way, but I put him in touch with her because we wanted to be very accurate and truthful and how things would proceed because like I said, a great part of the story is the NTSB investigation into it and ruling. And then when you try and build early buzz for it. You've been at the festivals. You also got Terrence Rafferty to write a significant piece about Denzel Washington, the actor, and it talks about the the time that uh, Denzel spent with pilots and in simulators. At what uh, You've made many visits to the set. Uh, did you get the, the sense that uh, this actor, known for so many different roles, was, was walking to you and he was a, a full-fledged airline pilot? 
Uh, you gotta see the movie, but yeah, you believe it. I think so. You know, I'm not a pilot, so I can't speak to it. But I, he's one of the best uh, actors of our time, and he's uh, incredibly compelling in the movie. I think you'll see. Um, talking about Paramount's slate and uh, bringing this film to theaters at this time, you know, the uh, the director is one that when we were at the White House, Forrest Gump was a huge film, and I want to hear one scene that sort of bridges the gap between the experience you and I had working for Bill Clinton and his role as a film director. They put you in this little room with just about anything you'd want to eat or drink. And since number one, I wasn't hungry the first day, and number two, they was free, I must have drank me about 15 Dr. Peppers. Congratulations. How does it feel to be an All-American? It's an honor, sir. Congratulations. How does it feel to be an All-American? Very good, sir. Congratulations. How does it feel to be an All-American? Very good, sir. Congratulations. How do you feel? I got it, paid. <laughs> I believe he said he had to go pee. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, John F. Kennedy telling, for, telling an aide that Forrest Gump needs to find a bathroom. David, in your time at the White House, uh, how many receptions like that did you oversee, and were you, did, were you good at directing people toward the, uh, the men's room if needed? Uh, I think I learned quite a few skills at the White House, including that. Uh, I did it quite a bit. In fact, uh, I had the good fortune, President Clinton, our former boss, happened to be doing a fundraiser for his Clinton Global Initiative just earlier this week at the Paramount Studios, and I got to see him and <laughs> once again recreate and see exactly that sort of sequence as he, he's being shuffled through a long line of people eager to meet him and say hello. What kind of a process is involved in getting someone like Zemeckis, uh, who hasn't made a live-action film since Castaway, to return to working with uh, real actors and uh, uh, at least not just with a microphone, but uh, in live-action and getting him on board? Who? What was the first talent that was really attached to this film? Uh, well, John Gaydon's, it was his idea, the writer, and he wrote it. And we got uh, early involved with Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, the producers we've had success with, personally. Uh, with them, they got Denzel interested. Um, but it really was a sort of fluke thing, which is Zemeckis was looking for his next movie, had made uh, suggestions or through his representatives that he was looking to make a live-action movie. And due to a relationship uh, I had with someone who worked with him, I sent them the script. And I was expecting to be a polite, oh, great script, thanks, no. It's like, no, he read it, he liked it. It's like, what? Uh, and it just went from there. And they went and moved really fast, and it was terrific. Because the whole thing is it just needs, like everything, things have to come into focus uh, and coalesce the right way. And then you can move with all deliberate speed, and that's sort of what we did here. And knock on wood, it will work out for us all. Talking about moving with all deliberate speed, or lack thereof, uh, can you? What year did you leave the White House? It was not. It was Fe February of nineteen ninety nine. February ninety nine. And what was the thinking? Like, I tried a little. My hand a little bit of writing. I thought I'd try and get a big score and move quickly. But you, you took the absolutely deliberate, methodical approach. Tell us about your your move from Washington D.C. to Hollywood. You know, uh, I was very fortunate. I started at a young age. I, uh, in nineteen ninety two, I was twenty years old. And I went to work for Bill Clinton. Uh, and I had, my passions always were sort of storytelling and politics. I was very passionate about both. And the work I got to do for President Clinton early on and where Josh and I became friends and met was doing what's called advanced work, traveling around the country, setting up these large-scale events, and you were trying to manipulate and tell a story. You were trying to tell a story that was going to be in the news or how this story was framed in the newspaper and such. So that experience really... One taught me a lot, I enjoyed it, and it sort of fed both sort of needs for me in terms of both politics and storytelling and production. 
Uh, and I had the good fortune of I was doing it to do it, to do it and had experience. I just happened to w- work for a guy who won and the first Democrat who had won in 12 years. And I had the choice of like, okay, go to LA where I didn't know anyone, had no friends and no clue. Or, and it was very far away from when it, anything I knew or go to DC where I had lots of friends and the potential of job opportunities. So I went to DC. Uh, and it was great. I went to work in the advance office and helped run the advance office and staff advance trips and go on trips and see the world. And that was a great ride. And then I was like, okay. A I'm lot gonna... of potential locations for future films. Oh, it was stuff. fantastic. Yeah, it was great. Uh, and characters, too. Exactly. To inspire. Uh, and then in 96, I was going to, I was like, oh, I was going to go to film school. And they got told, no, 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 no. You ain't got to stay. You got to stay at least. Goody through, Marshall yeah. needs you. Yeah, we're going to stay through a re-election inaugural. Uh, and then I did that, and it's like, okay, that's fun. And then that year of ni- of 97 uh, was great, but at the end of it, I started looking to move on uh, and started going to LA and network and meet people. Uh, and then <laughs> some events took some interesting turns in 98 that slowed that of path course, down. Yep. Uh, but the real story is like, you know, I had aspirations to write, still do get a lot of that out of in my job now, so it's not a big deal. But I had aspirations to write and hit it big and stuff, but I also knew that I craved a dynamic atmosphere and the security of a steady paycheck and I just basically said I'm like I need to get out here I need to just like I'm not I was not finding the time to you know work on those things in DC the way I had wanted to and I just said I need to sort of rip a bandaid off and go out there uh, and it just sort of worked out you know I got I was able to find an opportunity at Warner Brothers early on that was like a ringside seat of the movie business now you call it a ringside seat of the movie business but just so people don't think that you can decide to walk into the lot at Warner Brothers and start greenlighting films. What exactly were you doing? You know, I was really, I got, I was very fortunate to meet a gentleman who was sort of running uh, the Warner Brothers feature, the pictures group, uh, at a time of of change there. Uh, And he was sort of looking for a right-hand guy who, one, could be trusted with a lot of important information, could handle a lot of stuff others might not be able to, but also could hold his own in the room of celebrities and you know people who are and who believe that they are very important uh and so my experience from white house lent yeah, itself absolutely you know it was you know in politics you go for you go for two things you either run for office or you go from candidate to candidate and having started at the white house and for president everything felt sort of not a career i was ready to commit to and by what i do now shows even more i'm a behind the scenes person uh, yep. So I got that job, and I rose within that organization, uh, and I loved it. I just, you know, it's really fun to get to work on things that you know, for better or worse, they're going to stand the test of time for quite some time, and you're going to touch people in strange ways who see it on airplanes or on TV one day. You do not want to see flight on an airplane. I don't think you're going to be seeing flight on an airplane unless you're bringing it yourself. <laughs> uh, so that's what, uh, So Warner Brothers to DreamWorks? Warner Brothers DreamWorks had an opportunity. Uh, there was uh, an opportunity that the gentleman who was taking over at DreamWorks had wanted me to come over, and it was you know to work with Steven Spielberg was an unbelievable dream come true and uh, terrific experience and great fun. And uh, while I was there, uh, DreamWorks and Paramount uh, Paramount bought DreamWorks, uh, and we had a lot of success together. And then uh, uh, they they decided to split a couple of years ago, and I, I went. Paramount asked me to come over, and I've been there ever since for about five years now. So now you, like me, are a father of two. Uh, you get on these planes, and you come to New York, you fly to London, you leave the kids. Um, to what degree is it still accurate that studio executives working on developing a slate of films? Uh, can finish their work on Friday, but 
in the passenger seat as they drive home is a pile of scripts that could be 15 or 20 high, and you are doing nothing over the weekend but plotting through new stories and seeing if there's any kernel of, of brilliance there. And how does that jive with being a dad? It's hard. It's definitely hard. Uh, is that true? Are you really oh, working all weekend reading? And- uh, yeah. You know, there's a thing. I used to joke when we were in the White House, you would read the front page, and that would be the newspaper, and that would be work. Now I get to read, I read all the newspaper because it's all work, because I'm always searching, fishing for some sort of creative inspiration or interesting thing to provoke the next movie for me to pursue. Uh, but it's also creatively really fun. Uh, but yeah, it's hard. You know, being a dad today with little kids is a challenge and trying to find the time. You try to become more efficient with your time. You try to figure out what is what needs to be done and what is sort of wasted effort. Uh, you just you just muddle on through. But yeah, you, you know, that's the thing. You're always looking for the next big thing. Well, David Bobert, just off the red eye and off to a, an important uh, entertainment industry lunch, which we won't keep him from further. Uh, the film that he has shepherded to the screen is Flight, directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Denzel Washington. Broad release in theaters November 2nd. See it and then uh, reflect on it, and then go vote a couple days later. David, thanks so much for coming in. Spending a- some anytime. Time thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.